I mentioned a moment ago um, uh, firemen and fire service, and uh, as I've shared before, I, I began as a firefighter, then they asked me to be chaplain, I kind of did both for a while, Now I'm primarily uh, just a chaplain, although that's still a very important role. Um, I know Brian's a firefighter. Do we have any other current or former firefighters here? Okay, yeah, Rich, okay. Thank you, thank you for your service. When you sign up, especially given the, the, the need has always been there, and, and Pennsylvania especially, um, volunteer fire service is taken very seriously, and what you're doing is very serious. And when you sign up to do that, you know that you are ready to respond at any day, any hour, to go and um, first and foremost to make sure that people are safe, and then to knock down the fire and save the property if possible, keep further damage from happening, or going to um, auto accidents and, and helping the victims, making sure they're okay, and if they need attention from ambulance or even a medevac, you're, you're ready to go to get them the care they need as soon as possible. It's a very honorable thing to do. But when I signed up for it, when I went through my training to be a firefighter, um, they emphasized the danger. Now, there's a lot of good things about it, and, and fire companies tend to become a family, and a lot of friendships are developed, lifelong friendships through that. Many times that, that tradition is passed down to, to their sons and daughters, and they see dad and or mom doing this, and they want to follow in their footsteps. But those numbers are, are shrinking across the state, and, and fire companies are, have a hard time raising volunteers, and part of the reason might be because it is a risk. You could die doing this. And thankfully, it doesn't happen very often. There was a volunteer fighter fire down near Philadelphia that uh, passed away a couple of months ago um, on an active call. Um, but that's what the training's for, to make sure you're ready, to make sure you're safe, and to carry out the job as best you can. Whenever it was that you asked Jesus into your life, if indeed you have done so at some point in your life, you, you've, you became a Christian. You believed the message about the Son of God through Jesus Christ. We do that because we want to be connected with God. We do that because we want to understand this world and our lives better than we have on our own. And, and we believe that, that the message of God, that this book explains our Bibles, is, is, is the best way to live, and it promises us the best life we can have here in terms of love and, and joy and hope and peace in our hearts and also the promise of life beyond this world. But I bet you never thought, you know what, being a Christian could kill you. I mean literally. Like quite often I'll speak of the passages in the scripture, rightly so, that speak about you know, dying to yourself and giving your life for the work of God. And, and certainly many do that. And as we grow, we learn what that means and how different ways we can set aside our own lives for the sake of what God wants to establish in, in our lives, in our family, in our job, in our community. And, the, and as we learn to do that, sometimes it's hard. And in a nation that is still very free, in a nation where you can believe just about anything you want, about God or otherwise, or not believe it at all, that people will generally leave you alone either way, we have a harder and harder time understanding the risk that our, our church fathers, that, that the first disciples, the first apostles took when they said, I'm following Jesus. 
the reality was you're going to follow Jesus and you could die doing this. Now, up to this point in Acts, that hasn't happened yet. But it happened here, spoiler alert, because we'll get to this next week. <laughs> Stephen gets killed for this. And that picture there, although it's not graphic, it's, it's still brutal. To, to hurl stones and rocks at a person repeatedly until they're dead. Stoning. This is the path that Stephen was on. When Stephen first took faith in Jesus Christ and believed, he probably wasn't thinking, wow, I'm going to die doing this. No one goes into this with a, with a martyr complex, hopefully. Certainly there are some forms of religion where sadly people do that. To almost wanting to die a violent death if somehow they're honoring their God by doing so. Well, that's not the gospel. That's not the call of Christ in us. And yet, at the same time, there can be, and still is to this day in parts of our world, the very real danger that this could take your life by, by making a statement, by believing in the one that God sent and, and standing for, for him. It can be, and in many places still is, a dangerous step to take. We're going to look at this guy, Stephen, his faith, his passion, his boldness, his courage, and the tragedy that took place, but the glory that he was stepping into after he died. Now, in, in the seventh chapter, which we'll look at next week, it's a very long um, long speech or sermon, if you will, that Stephen gave. In fact, in Acts, the book of Acts is filled with sermons, if you will, that from Peter, from Paul, and here's Stephen, and this is longer than any of them. And, and there's, there's so much great content in that that we'll look at next week. But, but today, it, it begins with, um, in, in, the, in the sixth chapter, the choosing of the seven, as it's called, and this is where Stephen is sort of subtly introduced. Now, I'm going to walk through this quickly and just point out a couple of things as you heard the reading, maybe read it yourself. You might have a question, well, what's that? For example, Hellenistic Jews in verse 1. That, although there's some debate among scholars what that, what that phrase means or that, that term, it's most likely Jews that spoke Greek. They were in the Greek world. Now, just like in, in a growing sense, more and more people in the United States are multilingual, bilingual. In the world then, that was common. You would, you would probably know several languages you needed to because the, the way the world intersected through the Roman Empire, and one of the things for all the for all the negative sides and, and the persecution that Rome would eventually bring upon the church and the way the Jews didn't like them for good reason. On the positive side, Rome made a peaceful empire for the most part, and travel became safer. And when travel became safer, you would run into more and more people who had different languages. And if you're dealing in business, you have to learn that language in order to you know, make a sale and to, to, to develop a relationship. And so that was the case in the world during the New Testament times here. So anyway, Hellenistic Jews is simply uh, Jews that, that speak Greek, and maybe that's their first language that they speak commonly. And what we see there, and also in the first verse, is what they were doing is they, they complained. Now, I don't say complain like whining or they shouldn't complain. 
complained, they had, they had a good point. The, the widows from kind of their group were being neglected, and that's not right. This is the first instance in the church, in, as, as the story of the development of the church has, has be, began there at Acts 2, now we're up to the sixth chapter. This is the first moment we see something that could be divisive, something that could break them apart. Churches have always have the danger before them of dividing, of not getting along with one another. That's why Paul's, one of Paul's consistent themes throughout his writings is unity in the body, that we are together, that the church is on the same page. And when we have disagreements, we work them out. We, we don't just let them sit there thinking if we ignore them, they'll go away. No, we work at it. So thankfully, the apostles recognized this and they took care of this problem. Now, when it says there in uh, the second verse that, you know, we shouldn't be waiting on tables, that doesn't mean they are looking down upon that as if it's beneath them or that's for lesser people. What it does mean is that's simply not their gift. And yet God has gifted certain people to be literally servers. And they enjoy, they, they, they draw energy out of that. And some of you here are like that. You don't necessarily want attention to be in front of people, but making sure that there's enough food for everybody when we gather for a meal, making sure that everything's in place, everything's ready to go. You, you really enjoy doing that. There's something in your heart. That, that is the gift of hospitality. And there's other gifts listed in Romans 12, 3 to 8, that are the same way. So in other words, everyone needs to be using their gifts. Now the apostles knew their gift. Their gift was to preach and to teach, you know, to get the, get the message out. And as they did that, more people converted, and the needs came to the church. One of them was to make sure people had enough food. So those who have the gift of hospitality and serving were serving. It's, it's sort of like um, here at St. John's, um, I preach. That's, that's my main thing, and, and, and I lead, and, but don't trust me with other jobs, okay? Please, don't. Um, if, if, um, if we needed a different treasurer, and thankfully we don't, uh, Julia does a great job, uh, and someone said, you know, maybe Pastor Paul could do it. Oh, no, don't do that. <laughs> just ask my wife. Um, she handles the money. I don't know what to do with money. I just waste it, lose it, you know, so she handles the bills and all of that, and I just try and stay out of her way. But um, because that's not the way I'm wired. That's not my gift. All of you have gifts to put into place. And many of you are doing that. And, and, and I hope that, that uh, each of us will continually look for opportunities to use what God has given us here within this body and, and, and certainly beyond this body in your community. In many ways, you already are doing so, I hope. Serve and, and give in that way. So they chose seven men. Um, and what I like about this is it was a group decision. The apostles were clearly the leaders of the church. Now, the, the church in Jerusalem was thousands of people. Now, don't, don't picture, you know, a massive stadium like you see with megachurches today, and they all gathered once a week on Sunday. No, it wasn't that. They're, they met here, and they met in the temple courts. They met wherever they were welcome. They met in homes in smaller groups. It was a, a continual flow of people and a continual growth of people. But the clear leaders among these thousands of people in and around Jerusalem were the 12 apostles. When it came time to make an important decision to avoid a division with the Hellenistic Jews and make sure these people are fed, it was a 
group decision. Notice it says that in, in verse 5. The group saw this, uh, their proposal pleased the whole group, it says. And so that's important. They did this together. You might say in that sense they were congregational like, like our church government is. We, we make decisions once a year in terms of an annual meeting and once in a while, like the one we're going to have in a few weeks, about you know, taking care of fixing up this bell tower and how best to do that. It will be a group decision. And, and so this is what took place here. Um, now, the seven men are listed in verse 5. Among all of those names, and Darlene, you did a good job getting through those names, um, only Stephen and Philip are mentioned again. Stephen immediately after, obviously. And then Philip is mentioned in the 8th chapter. Now, I'll get to more detail about that when we get to the 8th chapter. Um, most scholars believe this is not the same Philip who was one of the apostles. And part of that reason is right here. Because the apostles selected seven apart from themselves. And one of those seven was Philip. So Philip was a fairly common name. So it's not the same as the apostle of Philip. <clears throat> and there was interestingly in verse 6, a large number of priests were joining them. You read through this and you can sort of gloss over that. Now, now, there was many, many priests. I mentioned, and we'll mention a few moments once again, about the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of, of the Jews in Jerusalem. There was as many as 72 of them. But there was many, many more times priests throughout Jerusalem and in, you know, throughout Judea and even all of Israel. But some of them, although some of them were teachers of the law, some of them were, were synagogue leaders, they carried out various uh, work at the, at the temple to, in, in worship and sacrifice and festivals. That's what the priests did. And some of them believed in Jesus. Some of them started. So like I said last week, how does, how does Luke know when he wrote Acts what was going on in some of these secret meetings of the Sanhedrin? He wasn't there. Well, as the, as the church grew, some of those perhaps even converted. Maybe, maybe Saul was in there, as I mentioned last week. <clears throat> now we get to, to Stephen in verse 7. And it says in the 8th verse that he was a man that uh, performed you know, great signs and wonders. Um, what that tells us is that he was able to you know, perhaps heal people or um, just do things that, that don't seem... Regular, like they're, they're miracles through him, and that's great. But the emphasis of the work of the Holy Spirit, the, the most important work of the Holy Spirit, is not signs and wonders. What signs and wonders do, and they did this with Jesus, they, they drew attention to the fact that, that Jesus and now the apostles have the Spirit of God in them, and, and, and so that drew attention to the message, but the message is what matters. The greatest work of the Holy Spirit is to convey the message, the word. And that's why it just kind of mentions this right here just for a couple of words in this one sentence in the eighth verse about Stephen did signs and wonders, performed miracles, and yet Luke, when he writes this, spends the entire seventh chapter on what Stephen said because it is the words. Remember when we looked at Jesus last year in the Gospel of Mark? He almost got annoyed sometimes at the attention he was getting because of the miracles. Although 
he wanted to do that and did so, he went to the towns, town to town, in order to preach and to teach. That was his primary focus. Yes, there was power for miracles as well, but it was mainly to convey to the people that there was now a new way, a better way to God that was here and that was coming that would be fulfilled one day in his death and resurrection. So it was the word that, that matters most. Um, now, the opposition hadn't gone away. Last week when we looked at the fifth chapter, the end of the fifth chapter, we saw how uh, the apostles were, were before the Sanhedrin and one of their members calmed the group down because I think they were ready to start throwing rocks at the 12 of them. But Gamaliel calmed the Sanhedrin and said, let's just, just wait. If this is from God, you can't stop it. If it's not from God, it'll go away on its own. And so they let them go, although they flogged them on the way out. So there was persecution happening. So that opposition, it wasn't as if they were satisfied that day. It wasn't as if, oh, now we don't have to worry about these Christians anymore. They're, they're just going to stop, you know, because we beat their leaders. Quite the opposite. The church grew more and more. And so the opposition was, again, coalescing, getting together to, in order to stop. Now there's another guy named Stephen. And opposition arose to him, and, and to maybe because he wasn't one of the apostles. Maybe they thought he would be more vulnerable. Maybe they thought they could intimidate him. In a way, their intimidation tactics didn't work with the apostles. But it tells us that in the ninth verse, that opposition arose. But they could not stand against the wisdom the Spirit gave him. No matter what they said, no matter what they tried. The Spirit gave him that wisdom. Remember, these were the most well-educated people among the Jews. Um, have you ever been in a situation where you felt intimidated by um, some very intellectual people in a setting, in a conversation? Maybe you end up at a, at a table at a wedding banquet or something like that. You don't know one another, but you give it your best. You make conversation and you find out there's people that have doctors and PhDs, and if some of you have that, awesome, you know. But uh, I would probably feel intimidated, but I'd, I'd work through it, you know. Well, they figured they could use their, their pedigree, their education, to intimidate this guy, and it completely flipped around. Somehow, no matter what they said, Stephen had a good answer. And that was frustrating to them. So when you can't defeat the truth, what do you do? Well, you go around and you persuade some people to start telling some lies. That tactic hasn't died, has it? Rather than admitting that you're wrong about something, especially about the things that matter most, matters of, of God and, and of who Christ is, matters of, of, of love and forgiveness, matters of integrity, if you're not on the side of truth, you have two choices. Either confess and admit that you're not on the side of truth and you want to be and everyone's welcome, or you fight it with lies. It worked. They went around and persuaded people to begin telling lies about Stephen and the apostles. Now, understand, up until this point, the crowd in Jerusalem was mostly on the side of the church and the apostles. They didn't see anything wrong with these guys. They were regular folk. Why don't you like them? And when 
in the fifth chapter, when they arrested the apostles, they did it very quietly. They very kind of, would you guys please come with us? It wasn't this show of force until they got them in, you know, by themselves there with the Sanhedrin because they were afraid of the crowd. So how do you flip the crowd? How do you go from a crowd that is pro-Jesus or at least tolerant of Jesus and the story of Jesus to going against the church? You tell lies. And these lies, they worked. They stirred up the people. And the reason they worked is because they were using what all of them believed to be so cherished. That was the law of Moses and God himself. And they, they were accused, accusing him of blasphemy. And you know we'll get, get back to that in, in, in just a bit here. But then they produced false witnesses. Does that sound familiar? The Sanhedrin, bringing false witnesses before them. And they were going to uphold this lie at all costs to try to stop this movement, to try to keep these people from, from changing everything. And that's what they were afraid of. They were afraid, you're, you're going to take away everything. You're going to take away the law. You're going to change our customs. Our way of life is on the line here. And they were afraid. And the lie was this, that this Jesus will destroy the temple and our customs. Now, Jesus did talk about, you know, if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. Now, he was using the language of metaphor about himself. He being the temple, and he was he crucified and buried, and on the third day, he rose again. So his, his body was rebuilt. His body was, was resurrected, but he was using himself as a temple, which was a, a seed planted, if you will, for what the church is, or each individual believer is. We are all temples of the Holy Spirit, as Paul writes. We are individually a temple of the Holy Spirit. God is with us. God is in us. His Spirit is in us. And then as a, collectively, as all believers, we are also the temple. But they could only think, and only wanted to think, in concrete ways, in structure, in buildings. I hope we're able to find a way, as, as best we can, to take care of this bell tower. We'll, we'll tell you how bad it is in a few weeks. We have some people up there looking at it and taking pictures of it, and yeah, it needs work, and it needs work very soon. Um, but you know what? This isn't the temple. Now, it's an important place because it's the place where we do gather for worship, and it's worship's been held here for since 18... I should know the number. 1860-something? Long time. <laughs> it's on the cornerstone out there. <laughs> But, and we want to continue that for as long as we can until the Lord comes. You know, but this is not a holy place. This is not where God lives. God lives in you. God lives collectively in us. So we always have to keep that in mind. As important as this building is, it's not as important as you individually and collectively being his church. <clears throat> and then it tells us in the 15th verse that Stephen had the look of an angel. His face was an angel. Now think about that. You have a room filled with people who have been assigned the duty 
of leading people to God. The high priests and the former high priests that were there. The leaders among the Pharisees, the leaders among the Sadducees, the the leaders of all the various groupings of, of, of Jewish people who understood the law of Moses and and the prophets and taught the people the best they could. At least that was what they were supposed to be doing. And as a whole, the room was getting angry. The room was was, was filled with a a sense of, we're going to stop this. Who is he to say this? And and, and jealousy and, and, and rage even was boiling over. And what would you, can, can you picture what their faces look like in that moment? Can you picture a really angry face? It's troubling when we see that in our lives, isn't it? Especially when it's directed at you personally in some way. And I don't mean just frustrated. I don't mean, you know, just disappointed. I mean anger like they want to hurt you or, or at the very least they just want to cut you off and maybe go out and say bad things about you, but, but that, that, that face of anger, that's what the faces in that room looked like, except for one, Stephen. In the middle of all this anger and turmoil was the face of an angel, was Stephen, calm in that setting. Why? Because the Spirit of God was in him and the Spirit of God enabled him to overcome that. No one wants to be in a situation where even one person is directing hateful anger and rage at you. But imagine a room filled with people and yet he was ready to withstand that because he trusted God. He had the face of an angel. And as you might have recognized already, you know, I'll go through these quickly, but there's, there's ways that Stephen's story, Stephen's life, reflects Jesus. And and the first one of those is trial before the Sanhedrin. In Mark 14, we also see Jesus before this same group for the most part. This is only a... I'm not sure how much time has transpired here. I actually looked for that. I wanted to get a better sense of it, but because sometimes in the Bible you'll read a story and it goes on to the next thing, and it might have been many months, a couple of years or more later. Uh, It probably wasn't years, but it was at least months but here is Jesus before that same group, and now here's Stephen before that same group. So they both had to withstand those angry faces, and, and they had to withstand some other things, false witnesses. They lined up, and again, as I said earlier, the way that evil will attempt to deny the truth, destroy the truth, is to develop lies and to get the people to believe the lies and to get people to line up with them to try to stop the lies and, and you know, destroy or discredit those who are telling the truth. And that's what both Jesus and Stephen endured in that same setting. A distorted meaning about the destruction of the temple, and I alluded to that a moment ago. The temple, as Jesus was speaking of, was himself. And yet talk about... Just take that literally and just cut that off and never mind what Jesus really meant by that or what he actually fulfilled in himself. Ignore that, deny that, reject that, and think anyone who wants to destroy this place, that is what's going to raise up the anger of everybody. And some of the people who might have been on the fence about the Christians, what, one of them saying they're going to knock the temple down? Oh, that's it. Get the rocks. 
So they were telling lies about the destruction of the temple and what that meant. And both of them say about the a temple made with hands, or actually the real temple obviously was made with hands, but in, in the end of uh, Stephen's speech, toward the end, as we'll get to next week, he says in the 48th verse of the 7th chapter, he quotes a verse how God does not dwell in a temple made by hands. And really, if the Sanhedrin would have been doing their work and doing their job, they would have also taught that. As beautiful and immaculate as the temple was, it was not as important as where God wants to dwell in the hearts and lives of people. Now, in Christ, that eventually became fulfilled. In Christ, that was now possible and open to everyone. Remember, the, I think the most important symbol at the death of Jesus was when the, the curtain in the Holy of Holies inside the temple structure complex was torn in half the moment Jesus died. And that was a signal from God. Now, access to God, access to forgiveness, is now not just through the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement, the blood of the Lamb. It is now open to everyone, and that is all done away with. So in a sense, he was changing everything, but he also said about himself, I have not come to destroy or dispose of the law or abolish the law. I have come to fulfill the law. That's what the Jewish leaders should have been looking for, hoping for, praying for. But in a sense, they were, now hear this, they were worshiping the building, not the God of the building, not the God who the building is supposed to help lead people to. God does not dwell in a place made with hands. Number five then, son of man at the right hand of God. Jesus says this. And you will see the Son of Man, uh, he says, uh, sitting at the right hand of God. Interestingly, when Stephen says it, he says, standing at the right hand of God, but the idea that he is at the right hand of God. Now, in saying that, that is what drove the Sanhedrin to send Jesus to the cross. That is what drove the Sanhedrin to pick up their rocks and kill this man. That phrase... This Jesus, who you crucified, at the right hand of God. That was why they accused them of blasphemy, charging them with blasphemy for that. Now, if Jesus had not resurrected, it would be blasphemy. And yet, because he was alive, and that's why it emphasizes every time in in Peter's speeches or sermons in you know, the, the second, third, fourth chapter of Acts, and now Stephen's in the sixth chapter, we have this same idea being emphasized that all the Jews, all people really, are responsible for the death of Jesus through our sin, but directly at the hands of the Sanhedrin. And yet, this Jesus whom you crucified showed that he was indeed God because he rose from the grave. Resurrection from the dead, of Jesus specifically, is not just a nice story that we can choose to believe or not. Resurrection from the dead is the key thing. Because as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus is not resurrected, we are to be pitied. We are foolish. We are stupid. What are we doing this for? 
especially because someone like Paul was almost killed like Stephen more than once. And, and so many other apostles who had to put their lives on the line, and some of them were eventually martyred, including James that we read about, and others according to tradition. Really, all of the 12, except for maybe John, according to tradition, we're not sure, were martyred for the faith. John just may have died on Patmos. You know, we're not sure what happened to John. But this is the key thing about it, is that, that he indeed has risen from the dead. That's why it's not blasphemy. But when you're not ready to receive it, you're just telling lies to everyone else, then that raises up the anger among all the people. And the high priest asked that question before he said that about sitting at the right hand of God. He has a key question for both of them, you know, about Jesus being really the son of God. That's what drives them, that anger so far. Both Stephen and Jesus said to God in prayer, out loud, I commit myself to you, receive my spirit. That's, that's, that's kind of unique too. <clears throat> and they both cry out in a loud voice. It tells us in scripture. And then the last one, what they're crying out is forgiveness. Wow. This man, Stephen, who comes on the scene very quickly and is just as quickly eliminated, at least in earthly terms, stood before these angry people. They beat him up, threw rocks at him, and so he's, he's down to his last breath. And what does he do with that last breath? He follows the pattern of his Savior. Forgive them, Lord. Forgive them. He didn't say to any of his friends who might have been nearby or weren't written down by someone later, I'm dying, but my buddy's going to get you. I'm dying, but one day we're going to turn around and we're going to stone you. There was no vengeance there. It was forgiveness even in the worst moment of hatred and anger and ugly rage being put upon one man. How far are you willing to follow the lead of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who is in you? to suffering and persecution for simply living out the truth. Thankfully, none of us, as, I know, as far as I know, have experienced the kind of thing that happened to Stephen. Of course, he was dead, but I mean, even the threat of it or even happened to the apostles, you know, literally beaten for, your, for believing in Jesus. Again, it does happen in the world now in some places. We're blessed that we don't have that. If you look, though, at the, at the there are other forms of suffering short of that, but nonetheless very troubling. Have you faced suffering because you're a follower of Jesus in some form or another? Persecution for believing? Being falsely accused because someone doesn't like the fact that, that you're a Christian? And can you, in turn, find it in your heart to forgive such a person, even to death? Stephen didn't want to die for the truth. He didn't wake up that morning and think, you know, I'm going to go out and preach today, and if God leads me, I'm going to, I'm going to you know, heal someone. I'm going to you know, do something amazing that, that God can get the credit for. More people can be drawn to him. He didn't wake up that morning thinking, I'm going to stand before them, and they're going to hate me, and they're going to kill me. That wasn't his plan for his day, I'm quite sure. And yet he was ready when the moment 
He was ready to shine like an angel, standing up to lies and deception. Are you? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for truth. For the truth that you indeed, Lord, have risen from the grave so that we have the opportunity to one day rise from the grave. But between now and then, each of us, Lord God, need to die to ourselves. Need to let go of the life that we built for ourselves apart from you and accept you. And for those here who have already made that step of faith, may we continue to walk in that path, continue to see areas where we need to let go and and be willing to experience suffering, persecution, accusation, whatever might come at us in whatever form, the same Holy Spirit that blessed Stephen in that moment is indeed with you. Believe that. Trust in him. In his name, amen.